Good morning. Last week, we were praying for the people who are picking up after Harvey and who are still picking up after Harvey. This week, as we speak, Irma is chewing up the keys heading into the mainland. And in the West, it's opposite problem, no rain, dry, hot, fires all over the place, people being displaced all over this country, losing homes, losing possessions. So we should pray, should we not? Let's pray for our countrymen. So let's, let's bow together. God, you are sovereign above everything, behind everything, Proverbs 16.33 says that every lot that is cast into the lap is from you. Every decision is from you. We know that ultimately you're behind it. And your purposes remain mysterious. But God, we pray that your purposes are for people to come to you. That through these disasters, through loss, through heartache and suffering, people will be stripped of everything that is secure for them, leaving only you. I pray you would use these to open hearts to you, Father. And Lord, if it is your will to have mercy, uh, to deviate the hurricane or reduce its strength, to quench these fires, uh, we pray that you would. Lord, I pray that you would also show us how to be in prayer, how to be a people of prayer. Because we're not just about us. We're not just about this church. We're about all people. So help us to be in prayer for those that are experiencing suffering. And to know how to help. Lord, we commit all of these people being affected by these many disasters uh, to you. And trust that you will use these things for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on a more positive note, I've been seeing a lot of really exciting things happening here at Emmanuel. There is a lot of love going around. We have felt it. We've been seeing it pass around between people. A lot of unity that's being built Interest in Emmanuel being propagated, other taking great steps of faith that's exciting to watch, and in fact, next week, we're all going to get to watch one of these great steps of faith, because Chris Webster is going to be baptized right here. Yeah, it's awesome. It's very exciting. So I hope that everybody comes next week so we can hear this man's testimony, what God has been doing in his life, share in the celebration God is bringing us, God has made us one in the body, and, he's, and through this declaration, we get to celebrate that Chris is part of the body, the body of Emmanuel, the body of Christ. So we're looking forward to it next week. All right. So, if you knew, we've been in the book of Mark. So at this point, you should probably open there. We've been in the first chapter of Mark. This is my Bible, and today I actually get to turn the page in the book of Mark. 
So I'm kind of excited about that. It's, uh, it's been the slow boat through Mark. But that's all right. There's a lot to learn. So Jesus, the long-awaited hope of Israel, had finally come, but in a way completely unlike the Jews were expecting. He came in obscurity, and yes, God did declare him his most beloved son in a, in a very dramatic way. But at best, a few hundred people witnessed it on the edge of the desert. It was obscure. And then, after Jesus is baptized, he disappeared into that desert for about a month and a half. It was not the best way to go ahead and announce that the Messiah has arrived to the world, so it would seem. And then, as I discussed, Jesus shows up in the most backwards of places, in Galilee. He collects for himself some disciples Those disciples are the most unassuming, non-threatening, backwards fishermen. These are the people he chooses. So it's not the strategy that you would have planned, that they were expecting. Keep that in mind. There's a peculiarity to Jesus' appearance. But he comes, he's proclaiming something. He's saying, the time has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus was proclaiming the breaking in of the kingdom of God. The enemy's territory had been penetrated, but this was not a D-Day type of landing. It was much quieter, much more subtle. The beachhead was not Normandy. It's more like some side theater of war that at the time seemed totally inconsequential. That's where he makes his invasion. Today, as we go through this, you're going to see that Jesus has authority over all things. He exercises that authority with power, without contest, except when it comes to us. He exercises his authority towards us in a most bizarre way, in a merciful way. So we'll see what that's about. So we're in Mark 1. We're going to read right now from from verses 14 to 34. And it's 21 to 34 that we're focusing on today. So in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, 
There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You get this urgency that we've been talking about in these passages again and again, immediately, 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 and then right into the next thing. So there is this urgency flowing throughout this passage or throughout this book. It's driving at something. So in in the book of Mark, as we've been seeing, Jesus had not yet gotten his hands dirty with the people. He had been proclaiming a message. Yes, he has appointed disciples, but there is little interaction so far between him and the public. But in this passage, you see Jesus diving into the fray and teaching the people with great authority, casting out demons and healing. He's in the thick of it. He's with the common and ordinary man. So his ministry has taken a turn. In verse 21, his disciples are with him. He just appointed them. They're going with him into Capernaum. And Friday night rolls around. Friday night is the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. So he goes there and he teaches. Now, I don't know if this sounds strange to you. It sounds strange to me a little bit. That Jesus shows up a totally unknown person and begins teaching. Imagine if somebody walked into this room and they walked up here and they began preaching. It would be unheard of, right? Um, and we might try to tackle him. I would. <laughs> I think it would be my duty at that point to tackle that guy. But Jesus shows up and he's preaching. So the Jewish synagogue was a little bit different than the way that our churches are set up. They were more of a meeting house. So there would be a religious leader who was uh, in charge of the synagogue, who was taking care of the facilities, perhaps lining up teachers, but not always, because the primary teachers in the synagogue were the laity, the common people. And so whoever was designated, whoever felt that they had something to bring that week would get up and preach. Now what they would do is they would go, go to the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and preach from there, or from the law, the Torah, the first five books, and preach on that. But it wasn't like they were doing what I'm doing today. They weren't really expositing the word. What they were doing is going to um, accepted Jewish teaching 
and talking about the way that Jewish tradition interprets those passages. So it was sort of like preaching regurgitated sermons. So that's what the laity were kind of doing, more often than not. But the scribes would kind of roll around Judea and Galilee, and when they showed up, they would most likely be preaching in the synagogue because they were the scribes. They had the knowledge. They had the education. It was their sacred task to make sure that the scriptures were preserved, that the right understanding of the scriptures was propagated. It was their job. They were the ones who knew the scripture. They were so renowned in Judea and Galilee that they had great followings. They were kind of like celebrities in the Judean world. So they would get the best seats wherever they went, People, when they were walking down the streets, people would get out of the way and defer to the scribes passing by like they were some great figure. And, the, and, it, and they had these <laughs> followings. It wasn't just disciples. It was kind of like groupies. You know, they'd all have their scribe that they liked the best. It was kind of funny for us to think about that in a religious context. Um, but it was a religious nation. Very religious. So they were the celebrities. Well, anyway, Jesus gets up in this obscure place in Galilee, in Capernaum, in a synagogue. It's of relatively little importance. And he begins preaching. And everybody who hears his words is astonished. Look at what they say in verse 22. Look down at 22. He taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the scribes, they possessed this great knowledge. As far as the people in Judea are concerned, they had the greatest authority. But Jesus is not teaching like them. So this, this passage is not saying that Jesus' teaching diminished the authority of the scribes. It's saying that Jesus' authority was so much higher than that of the scribes. It was something beyond. Something unseen before. Remember, the Jews had not heard the voice of God for 430 years. 430 years. Do you remember? That's 1587, 430 years ago from us. That's a long time. So Jesus is speaking with this authority. When they hear that, when they say that, they mean not like one of, not even like one of the prophets of old, but like something new. These are like the words of God. It's as if this man is speaking the very words of God. The authority that Jesus possesses as he preaches leaves them amazed, astonished. Not like, did you see that YouTube video? That was amazing. Not like that. Different, utter, absolute astonishment. So I was thinking, was there a time in my life where I felt this? And for some reason, this story came to my mind. Meg and I and another couple were doing some backcountry camping in Assateague, Maryland. It's an island um, really close to Virginia. And so we hiked way out, set up our tents in the, in, in the sand. <laughs> uh, we're the highest points, tents. And uh, we have our, our fun day and we go to sleep. In the middle of the night, we awake to some... Tremendous thunder. I mean, scary, shake you in your sleeping bag thunder, and you immediately think, we're the highest point on this beach. We're toast. 
because you could also see the flashing through the tent. So we all get out. Every one of us wakes up afraid, gets out of our tents, and we see this storm rolling on us. And it's so dark except with the flashing of the lightning. And the clouds are being illuminated with the lightning and it's flashing. You can literally see it striking the water coming towards you. It's scary, right? But then all of a sudden, it just seems to split. And some goes over the bay and some goes over the ocean. And we're just amazed, watching it striking on both sides of us, still hearing the thunder booming. It was astonishing. So it was absolutely beautiful at the same time. You know, powerful and scary and beautiful and astonishing. It's stunning. It's, obviously, it's a moment I remember. It was powerful. And it took a while to go to sleep after that. It was, so, it was like an adrenaline shot. So that's the kind of astonishment we're talking about when Jesus preaches. It's not, oh, that's cool, that's amazing. It's like you've just been rattled by a storm that you thought could take your life. Not that they were fearing for their lives hearing Jesus talk, but that kind of power, that kind of beauty, authority, unparalleled. So they were amazed in a way that they had never experienced before. It was something new. Not like a prophet. Jesus did not say, thus says the Lord. No, he spoke with self-authenticating authority as, as if he was the Lord. Bizarre. So this means that Jesus, well, remember what John 1 says about Jesus, that Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, and the Word was among us. Jesus is the Word of God. The Word became flesh and walked among us. So the Word of God, all that was spoken by God, all that we find in the Bible, all the Word that holds the universe together is personified in the man of Jesus. It's a bizarre thought that words spoken become a man or are a man and have been this God-man for all eternity. And when this word of God speaks, he is God. And so what he says are literally the words of God. The word of God speaking the words of God. Jesus' words do something unique. They, not only do they astonish the people in a way unparalleled with an authority so great, but it shines light into the darkness. And so look at what happens in verse 23. As Jesus has spoken. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So Jesus spoke and immediately polarizes the light from the darkness in that synagogue. And this man with the unclean spirit is uh, exposed. So he shows up, this guy who's demonically possessed, 
For us, I think in our day, that's a little bit hard to understand, and we're pretty skeptical about it. But just know that, that Jesus, the ultimate authority, and all the people in the synagogue are, are acting as if there is a demon inside of this man. So they believe it. So we need to keep an open mind about this. We cannot take our American 21st century skeptical perceptions and impose them on a first century Jewish reality. We have to keep an open mind about it. While at the same time, we need to be aware of our cultural situation. So it's our position to be skeptical uh, about these sorts of things. So what we do is we ignore the realities of this demonic realm. Uh, but we can't. The, the, the wiles of Satan, this de- these demonic forces, are exactly what the Bible teaches. They exist and they are real. And in a society like ours, we're prone to ignore it. We're prone to laugh it off. We're prone to just relegate it uh, to the closet with our skepticism. But Satan's influence is real. On the other hand, we could get too crazy. Do you remember the Salem witch trials? Too crazy. They gave way too much authority to Satan, way too little to the word of Christ. So there's a line that we have to walk. Not giving too much authority and too much fear to the demonic realm and not ignoring it. They are real. They exert an influential force over people. Maybe even people here. People we know, perhaps. They're real. And yet we do not need to be afraid of it. For the word of Christ is powerful. It's supreme. It's over and above in authority. So this man, with his unclean spirit, he makes a scene in the synagogue. He's shouting. Everybody's attention is drawn to him. The unclean spirit has so much authority over this man that he speaks through the man. The demon is speaking through the man. That is authority over a person. If I can somehow speak through you, I have authority over you. I can't. But a demon in this situation is doing it. It shouts, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So when you compare that language that the demon is using, when you compare that with other places in the Bible where that sort of language is used, you learn something about the way in which the demon is saying it, the, the sort of demeanor the demon has. The very... Well, it it produces in this demon some mixture of fear and defiance because the very presence of Christ is a threat to him. Because in the last days, the Messiah would come, right? And Jesus is going around saying that the end is here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. These are the last days. That's what Jesus has been proclaiming. And more pertinent for the demon in the last days, the demonic Forces are supposed to be eradicated. So this demon is scared. He's trembling in the face of Jesus. But defiant, the the demon remains. There is this idea in the Jewish world, uh, at, at the time especially, that if you say a spirit's exact name, exactly right, you can gain mastery over it. 
There are actually some denominations today that still are believing that. So if you say the demon's name or the spirit's name exactly right, you can gain mastery over it. So that's why the demon is saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. He is defiantly, somehow, deludedly trying to gain mastery over Jesus. But the demon is a fool. Stands no chance. With a word, the demon must obey. And here we see the authority of Jesus on display in an unparalleled way. The kingdoms meet toe to toe. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, meet toe to toe. One anointed with the Holy Spirit meets a man possessed by an unclean spirit. The kingdom of God is at hand, and this is proof positive of that reality. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the word of God. They crumble and they fall as Jesus speaks. And the demon is banished. But let's think about this guy who's possessed by the demon for a little bit. This man with a demon holding such firm, having such a firm hold on his life, is an enemy of God. He's separated from the love of the Father, and he is bound in an eternal death. He was bound to the will of Satan in a very visible and very disturbing way. Bound to the will of Satan. And you say, well, obviously, there's a demon possessing him. I bring it up because there's a more subtle danger here. This man is not so different than you or me because we all have a will. We all naturally align that will to one thing or another. You are not the master of your will. You align your will to something. You give mastery of your will to something. You give authority of your will to something. And when we choose to live for ourselves, Satan is over there cheering. Got one. I got one. When we live for ourselves, when we are our own God, we have aligned ourselves with the will of Satan. Any one of us who chooses this, if we choose comfort over following Jesus, if we choose to keep for ourselves rather than to be generous, we align ourselves with the will of Satan. And anything else that we might do for ourselves, to better ourselves, to increase our own position, we're aligning ourselves with the will of Satan. Conversely, if we follow Christ, if we live sacrificially for the good of others, for the glory of God, we align ourselves with the will of Christ. 
These are the two choices. It might manifest in different ways. These are the two choices for humanity. The will of Satan is to be absolutely possessed by your own self. To love yourself with your whole heart, mind, soul, and body. To love yourself more than you love your neighbor. That kind of possession is far more subtle and perhaps far more insidious. We all need to be on guard. 1 Peter 5.8 should come up on the screen. And you're probably familiar with it. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter is writing those words to Christians. That is not to the secular community. Now, in no way am I trying to say that if you're not careful, some demon is going to come in and possess you. I'm not saying that. But that will of ours, that will of ours is a tricky thing. And we're not perfect yet. And so we are trying to keep our will aligned with that of Christ. Satan wants you to live for yourself. He wants you to choose things for yourself, to love yourself above all else, to look out for number one. God, he wants you to live for others, to know his great love for you. He wants you to know it. And in response to his love for you, that you would lovingly follow him. Even if he says to you, we're going to the cross. One direction is independent. It is independent and inward focused. The other direction is totally dependent, upward and outward focused. So will one direction is leading you to death, one direction is leading you to eternal life, one to bondage, one to freedom. One into everlasting, unending, unrelenting wrath of God. And one to unending, unrelenting, everlasting love of the Father. So the stakes are high. Really high. For you and for the people around you. But Jesus speaks a word and the possession is over. The demon no longer has power to stay in this man, no longer has power over the man. The voice of Jesus brings freedom to his bondage. It does seem that the unclean spirit doesn't want to leave, right? He's convulsing the man, he's shouting, creating a a big scene, but in the end, absolutely cannot stand up against the word of Christ. Christ has authority over the demon, And nothing like this in all of history has ever happened. Totally new. When Jesus expels the demon, this is is important. When Jesus expels the demon, it is not at the man's expense. It is on the man's behalf. Not only is this man rid of the demon that held him as a slave, 
But this broken person is restored to health. He is made whole. And so Christ is not just displaying his authority over the demonic realm. He's displaying his authority in restoration. This man no longer displays the image of the demon who held him in captivity. But this man is now displaying the image of God who created him. Jesus breaks into his prison and opens the door, breaks the bonds that held this man captive. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit of God. He has come proclaiming the gospel. And here he is setting free those in captivity. The prophecies are being fulfilled. They've not seen anything like this. The people are amazed. And if they were amazed at the authority in which Jesus spoke, how much more are they amazed at this scene? They just saw this strange man show up and preach with such authority that they are astonished in a way that they have never been. They've never heard the word like that. And then he casts a demon out of a man. They heard the word of God and they saw the word of God in action. Word and action. Word and action. There's something marvelous in this passage. Jesus teaching with great authority, authority that amazed the people. But Mark doesn't give us a shred of what he's teaching. Why? Would you not like to be amazed by the words that Jesus is teaching? Why don't we hear that? There is a reason. It's an awesome reason. The person of Jesus is infinitely more important than the subject of his teaching. If we want the gospel, we have to look at the person of Jesus. If we want to be free from that which enslaves us, we have to look at the person of Jesus. If we want to understand what Jesus is saying, We have to look at his person. He is a person. Like you are a person. Like I am a person. He's a person. People are for relationships. It's Jesus alone, the person of Jesus alone, that frees a person You can read all of these words. You can memorize them. You can study them. You can learn them in Greek. You can teach them to others and completely miss the person of Jesus. He's not an idea. Jesus is not merely a moral standard. He is not a theological allegiance. We cannot objectify him. He's a person. A person that offers himself to us. He's a person that lives with such love, such love that he died for us on the cross. 
so that we could have a relationship with him. The focus of our passage is not the subject of Jesus' teaching. The focus of our passage is the person of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come demanding that you meet requirements. He didn't ask this demon-possessed man if he was an alcoholic or if he has some prison sentence or if he's a dispensationalist. He doesn't care. The focus of your life, of all the things that Jesus teaches and commands, is your focus the commands, the teachings, the requirements, or is your focus Jesus, the person of Jesus? And so here's a test. Take this test. When you tell people about Jesus, what do you offer? When, do you offer them, you know, these are the things that a Christian has to do. If you want to repent and believe, these are the ways in which you repent. This is what repentance looks like, and you need to do these things. Do you offer some rules? Do you offer some this is a way that you're supposed to behave? Or do you offer the person of Jesus? Do you offer somebody who wants a relationship? Do you offer somebody who listens? Do you offer somebody who understands your situation? Do you offer somebody who has grace for everything that you've done wrong and everything that you're not? Or do you offer somebody something that they have to become? Mark shows us Jesus. Jesus, who lives as a man and who is truly and fully God. It's amazing. This man, Jesus, this God-man, he's so unique. He commands such authority that the people leave that synagogue and they spread his fame throughout the whole region. Look at verse 28. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus is not exalting himself here. People are just so amazed by him, what just happened, this miracle, that they're running around Galilee telling everybody they know about what has just happened. This is no ordinary man. Let's keep reading, verses 29 and 30. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately he to- they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So they retreat to Simon Peter and Andrew's house, and there is Simon's mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. You can imagine the scene, right? Simon Peter and Andrew, they get home, finding Simon's mother-in-law in bed, sick. And they've just seen Jesus do some amazing things. They know that he is a powerful man. So they get him. They hope he can do something. And he walks into their, her room, and he looks upon her, probably a sweaty mess. 
He offers his hand and raises her up, and she is healed. Of all of Jesus' miracles, this probably has to be one of the most minor. Right? It's simple, there's few observers, and it's, it's a fever, a relatively minor condition when you compare it to leprosy or paralysis, paralysis or um, blindness or any of these other things. So why is this relatively minor healing here? Well, certainly it's because Mark is, is dictating Peter's stories, and Peter was there, it was his mother-in-law, so there's that connection. But I think there's a more important reason. A small miracle highlights the compassion of Jesus. Peter's become Jesus' friend. You can see the concern in the story, right? Peter and Andrew, they get home, they find Peter's mother-in-law laying sick in the bed, like I said, and they're concerned. They love her. They want her to get better. So they go find Jesus. Jesus, come. She's sick. Will you help us? They're concerned for her. And Jesus, responding to that concern, follows them. He heals her in the most tender and gentle way. He just reaches for her hand and lifts her up. Look at verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them takes her by the hand and lifts her up and she is healed. So he has compassion on this woman. It's so gentle. He attends her so carefully. He heals her. It's a beautiful scene, even if it is not one of the most spectacular miracles. It is the personal touch of Jesus that brings healing to this woman. The personal touch of Jesus. And what does she do? She gets up immediately and begins to serve them. All right, this is not some woman's duty that she is fulfilling here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> not that. It's not what's happening. She's not just getting on with a duty. She's not doing this because Jesus and the disciples are demanding this of her. They are not exacting this kind of response from her. She has gotten up from being healed because she just personally encountered the tender, compassionate love of Jesus and was healed by him. She doesn't serve out of obligation. She serves out of gratitude and love. This is a response to Jesus. Listen to Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ, who lived eternally past and will live forever into the future, perfectly holy in all of his ways, with his words, holds together the galaxies with a brilliance of glory that if you were to see it, you would fall like a dead person. This infinitely powerful, supremely authoritative God has come to serve us. We are the most sinful, unhealthy, immoral, obscene, doomed people in his kingdom. And the king of the kingdom comes to serve us. It's the most upside-down kingdom conceivable. 
But when Jesus reaches down and he makes us well, he restores us, he brings us peace with God, it produces something in us. It must produce something in us. And we respond by serving him. Just as he has served us. Through his death, he gave us life. With love and gratitude, we get up off of our sick beds and we serve him because we are thankful, because we love him, because it is a life that is so worth living. That is the authority that Jesus has. We, we've seen that Jesus has authority over Scripture, his authority over the spiritual realm, his authority to reconcile man, and his authority over sickness in the physical realm. But does not Jesus have some authority over us? He does not make us do his will. He does it in another way, in a mysterious way, in a hidden way. So let's keep reading. We'll see that hidden way. Verses 32 to 34. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So the Jewish Sabbath, like I said, starts on Friday night. And then it ends on Saturday night at sundown. So at sundown, the people are showing up. Because on the Sabbath day, it was unlawful for them to work or to travel and certainly to be hauling around sick people. So as soon as the Sabbath is over, they're at Simon and Andrew's door looking for Jesus. The incredible news of his authority has indeed spread throughout Galilee. But with all of that authority... Jesus is so humble here. He's compassionate. He's eager to serve. Clearly, he's here for the people because if this were to happen and tons of people were to show up at my door, I might be a little bit annoyed. I've got things going on. Right? Jesus doesn't have any of that. He heals the sick. He frees those who are bound in demonic oppression. This is the nature of God. He gets his hands dirty even though he's infinitely holy and powerful. He mixes with the sinners and the sick. He brings health and freedom and life. This is our Jesus, the person of Jesus. This is our God. But how strange it is that in verse 34, he silences the demon. The demons. Just because, just like he did the demon in the synagogue, the spirits, they're only proclaiming who Jesus is. And he silences them. The Holy One of God, be quiet. Why would Jesus want to stop that? What is with the silencing? He's come to share the gospel. He's come to spread the good news. He's come to show everybody what God is really like, to inbreak the kingdom of God, and he's telling the people that know about it to be quiet. You find in the book of Mark, this happens over and over and over and over again. He commands the demons to be quiet. He commands people that have experienced miracles and realize he's the Son of God. He commands them to be quiet. In fact, the more people want to call Jesus the Messiah, the more strictly Jesus charges them to be quiet. Why? This all has to do with the authority of Jesus. 
Jesus has the power and authority to command us into becoming his followers like robots. You will follow me. Yes. But he doesn't do it that way. He works in another way. A way in which we get to know him as a person. A way in which we have a relationship with him. A way in which we give him authority in our lives. Christ does not make us serve him. And he could. He doesn't. He shows us his heart. He shows us his compassion. He shows us that he cares. His love. He shows us his person. And then he gives his life for us so that we might give our lives in return to him. The way that a husband gives his, wa- his life to his wife. And in return, she gives her life to him. A husband does not command his wife to follow her. I hope. A husband loves her, his wife and serves her. And through that, she gives her life to him. It's born out of love and desire. It's born out of relationship. No one follows Jesus merely because he performs miracles. Even if the miracle happened to you. You see in the Gospels that even after people have experienced the miracles of Jesus... They doubt still. They demand more signs. Some of them even call Jesus an agent of Satan for the miracles that he's performed. It's crazy. Well, it is a relationship with Jesus. It is belief in who Jesus really is that brings sense to the miracles. Jesus' authority in hiddenness is a mercy to us. He does not coerce us into following him. He does not try to prove himself like some insecure person by his miracles. These things will never change a human heart. Jesus will never exact human affection from us through his authority, no matter how astonishing it might be. Jesus evokes discipleship through humility, through his compassion, through serving, through suffering. If you will not receive Jesus in this humble human form. You will not receive Jesus in his glorified, powerful form. So if we do accept Jesus for who he is as a humble servant, at the same time recognizing him to be the authoritative divinity that he is, if we have chosen to follow him because of these things, then have you decided to give authority of your life over to him? But what does that mean? What does it mean to give Christ the authority of your life? Now, I recently came across a clip from Francis Chan that really helps to illustrate this. So imagine I tell one of my daughters, go clean your room. And she's happy about it and runs upstairs to clean her room. Well, some time passes and I go up there and I find her in a room and the room is a disaster. I say, what were you doing? And she has a big smile on her face, and she says, oh, Dad, I memorized what you told me. You told me to clean my room. I said, yeah, but your room's a disaster. 
Oh, Dad, it's good, it's good. I've studied all about what it means to clean my room. I'm going to have some friends over later, Dad, and we're going to talk about what it means to clean our room. Dad, I can even tell you that phrase in Greek. That's insane. That is insane. I didn't want her to study, to memorize, to learn it in Greek. I wanted her to clean a room. So when Jesus says something like, go and make disciples, it means go and make disciples. Actually, go out and do it. How many of us are actively making disciples? How many of us have done studies on what it means to make disciples? All right. So who is fostering relationships right now that are bringing people closer to Christ? If we believe that Jesus has authority, we have to give him that authority over our lives. We have to submit ourselves to the things that he says and really work on doing them. Not because it's our Christian obligation, but because we know Jesus, the person of Jesus. We know that he loves us and what he wants us to do is good for us. It's good for the people around us and it brings him glory. He has things to say about your life. Do you listen to them? Or do you shrug them off? Ah, there's younger people. They'll do the discipling. Oh, I don't know anybody in the area. I'm going to worry about it. Where do you make disciples? Do you try to make disciples? Find people that might want to know Christ. Yeah. Jesus is the word of God. And as the word, he speaks with astonishing authority. He has such authority that the kingdom of Satan is like some plastic bag in a hurricane and is absolutely tossed in the wind. But that great authority that he exercises over the demonic realm, he does not exercise over us. His is different. It's more of a gentle breeze of serving, of caring, of sacrifice, that we might know him and love him, that we might follow him, that we might give him our lives as he has given us his life. He has broken through our prison. He has smashed our chains that bind us. And so now we can sit in our dark prison and resist him, or we can grab his outstretched hand and walk into freedom with him. So have you you given Jesus authority over your life? Or are you the greatest authority in your life? Will you do what you want to do? Will you heed the words of Christ that we read last week? Come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the greatest authority. You have ultimate authority over all things. With a word, this hurricane could dissolve. With a word, you could end our lives. 
and yet soothingly and lovingly, gently, you speak to us. God, I pray that you would help us to hear, to listen, to respond, to give you authority over our lives. We are yours. With great price, you purchased us. I pray that every one of us would weigh in their own hearts who has authority. And we would give to you our whole hearts. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.